This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Monday, is dipping into your super to buy your first home a good idea or will it hike prices and jeopardise retirement? And concerns for the safety of nurses, an outback hospital fails a security audit. First up today, housing and politics. In the federal seat of Gilmore on the New South Wales south coast, affordable housing is one of the biggest challenges. So much so that the coalition's sweetener deal for first home buyers isn't an option for many young people in the electorate. It's close to impossible in some parts to get a rental. Homelessness is going up and locals say what's needed is more housing supply. Catherine Gregory reports from Gilmore. Brothers Lachlan and Jake work in a cafe in Mollymook, a small beachside town on the New South Wales south coast. They're locals in their early 20s and have been hunting for a property to buy together. Looking, looking at the housing prices in, in the area at the moment, it just it makes it really hard. Tell, tell me why, like how much would a house be? In excess down here of, I don't know, for a three, four bedroom house, you're looking above 750 to 800,000. So. And have you guys seen prices just go up? Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. The South Coast has seen a huge influx of sea changes, moving from places like Sydney and Canberra during the pandemic, so prices have gone up, while supply of housing is disappearing. It's one of the biggest issues in this electorate of Gilmore. So the Coalition's policy for first home buyers to be able to use a significant portion of their super to buy a property doesn't work for Lachlan and Jake. Not, not at the moment and not, not with the way the prices are down here in, in Mollymore. Yeah. Is that something you'd even want to do, dip into your super? Not really, no. Yeah, I want to save my super for when I'm older. They also don't have nearly enough super to even use. Oh, I haven't looked at my super in a while, so yeah, I'm not sure, but it's not that much, I can tell you that. The Coalition has been trying hard to win back voters here since it lost the seat to Labor in 2019 and the Black Summer bushfires, which sparked a lot of criticism of Scott Morrison's leadership style, both here and nationally. It's making it tough for the Liberal candidate and former New South Wales Transport Minister, Andrew Constance. I might vote an independent. It's, it's hard to love anyone at the moment. Ed is in his 40s and bought a property here in 2011. He normally votes Liberal, but now isn't so sure. I felt like they had three years to do something and, you know, pandemic aside, they did very little. It doesn't seem like they really have a reform agenda. So I'll be looking elsewhere this time around. And what do you think of Andrew Constance? He seems like a good guy. Um, if it was just him I was voting for, then I'd be happy to, but, you know, he comes with a party attached. He's also worried about the Coalition's policy for first home buyers. But I thought all that demand-side stimulus stuff had been discredited a long time ago because it just pushes prices further, further up and makes it harder for people. What do you think are some of the biggest concerns for you? Cost of living, for, particularly for working-class people down here, ability to find rentals... Um, People have been sort of priced out by holidaymakers and it it does affect the fabric of the community. Grant Schultz is a former real estate agent in the region of Mollymook and Ulladulla. So you can see there's been a massive 
um, increasing demand and a drop in supply. He's seen the average price of a four-bed house go from $450,000 seven years ago to over a million dollars today because of the huge population growth in the region, lack of supply and increase in holiday homes. He's a former Liberal Party member who was pre-selected to run in Gilmore in the last election but ended up running as an independent instead. But he thinks the coalition's first home buyers policy is mostly meaningless for young people in the area. They'll be old people by the time they've got sufficient superannuation funds to dip into for a start. In the long term, um, I believe it's also a highly risky strategy because it can have a very adverse impact on their ability to be self-supporting once they do reach retirement age. I think it's highly risky. But again, it goes back to the key issue that that's all almost irrelevant given that all this will do will drive up housing prices even further if that's possible. Still, he's not impressed by Labor's housing policy either, which is a shared equity scheme where the government contributes to lower income earners' deposits. Both fundamentally failing. You've got to increase supply and de- or decrease demand or both. Their policies don't do that. They f- fail in every aspect. All they're doing is basically providing incentives for more buyers to enter the market, which if you haven't substantially increased supply, and that is probably the key issue at the moment, it's going to drive up prices massively. That's Grant Schultz, Catherine Gregory with that report. Well, in inner Brisbane, the coalition's housing policy is being received with a mix of indifference and confusion. The seat of Brisbane is held by the LNP's Trevor Evans on a margin close to 5%, but he's facing a two-pronged challenge from Labor and the Greens. Rachel Mealy reports. Windsor train station is just a few stops north of Brisbane city. Morning commuters were digesting the news and making their own assessments. I think it doesn't do much to help those who can't already afford a house. It's dipping into your future to try and make your present a better place. And I think it will cost people more in the long run. And so that doesn't appeal to you to be able to access your super earlier? For me... Given my situation, it might because I'd be building a future for my wife rather than myself, but I don't think it will greatly benefit me, no. I don't think it's a significant amount enough to make it worthwhile for people who would actually benefit from it, given, um, given the scope of, of what's involved. When you were buying a house, would you have been tempted to sort of dip into your superannuation? Very much so, and even when I was paying it off, the uh, return on my um, super would have been far lower than what I would have saved in interest at the time. But at this point, I'm kind of glad it didn't come to that. Jo was with her two kids and was racing to get to the gym across the road. She's already voted because she's going away this weekend. I kind of looked at the characters of the leaders, to be honest, and the, uh, uh, I guess like their views on childcare, education and health were the big things for me, so and that's how I voted. Can yeah. I ask, do you own your own home? Yes, I do. Yeah. And so has it been difficult to get into the market? What are your sort of thoughts about housing? And um, I think there is an affordability crisis, that's for sure. I think I've got a lot of friends who are looking to buy and can't find anything um, sort of in their their budgets and they all have decent salaries and good savings so I think it's a bit disheartening for people. The 2016 census figures revealed that 65% of voters in the electorate of Brisbane own their own homes. About half of those are paying off a mortgage. But since then property prices have soared and there's been a huge influx of people from southern states during the pandemic. On top of that, the recent floods have made a tight rental market even more strained. This man says he'd be interested in accessing his super to help buy a house, 
but he's a long way from that. That would be great if I would actually be able to get work to afford that. It's very hard to even get hours at jobs at the moment, so it's not just the housing crisis, it's also issues with jobs. What industry are you in? Uh, The disability sector. So of all jobs that are lacking help, we're also over-hiring and a lot of us casuals just aren't getting the raises we need. I guess just not being able to support myself financially is the major thing. With the price of rent going up, it's just making everything extremely difficult just to be able to eat. The Labor Party likes its chances in the seat of Brisbane. It's hoping to capitalise on discontent about a number of issues, but it'll face a strong challenge here from the Greens. The Greens gained more than 22% of the primary vote at the last election, just two percentage points away from the Labor Party. And the minds of voters aren't just on the housing market. What matters to you? Climate change and healthcare, free healthcare. That's Brisbane voters ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Well, some seasoned economists have slammed the coalition's proposal to allow home buyers to dip into their super. Here's our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Veteran economist Saul Eslake is never short of a word, but his immediate reaction to Scott Morrison's superannuation for housing policy was red hot. Well, I said I wanted to scream, this reckless inflation of house prices must stop. Saul Eslake says there's plenty of history confirming that government stimulus, tax breaks and now plans to allow access to superannuation only makes home ownership more difficult. And the trade-off between the hope of capital gain from real estate versus compounding interest on superannuation balances could be a risky bet. We now have almost six decades of experience, which in my view proves unequivocally and incontrovertibly that anything which allows Australians to pay more for housing than they otherwise would, be it first-time owner grants, stamp duty concessions, mortgage deposit guarantee schemes, and even lower interest rates, results primarily in higher house prices. And this policy is just another example of that. A lot of people will glaze over when they start hearing about compound interest and how that works, but it is a pretty big decision if you're betting on capital gains and house prices at a time when they might be falling. While it's true that residential property prices have risen at a faster rate over the last 30 years than the sort of assets in which superannuation funds invest, the mere fact that property prices have risen at a faster rate than superannuation fund assets over the last 20 or 30 years is probably a good reason for wondering that that might not be the case over the next 10, 20 or 30 years. Saul Eslake isn't on his own in urging caution. Economist Stephen Kakoulis agrees now might not be the best time to pay more for real estate and that people who do get in could end up relying on the aged pension if their super balances are eroded early on. Getting into the housing market now might just be that additional risk that if we do see a period where houses pull back at at this stage, then people will be pulling money out of super and putting it into an asset that's uh, declining in value. It is tempting, though, for people who might see this as money they need now rather than money that they might have to use further down the track. Oh, that's quite right. Of course, it's tempting to take money out of something that you can't really access for many decades to come. But then you run the risk that when you do hit your retirement age, that you've got an inadequate amount of savings in there and that you're calling on the public purse. So what does that mean? That they call on the pension down the track. The Property Research Group core 
Logic says the coalition's policy has merit but agrees it will add to demand and possibly increase the cost of housing. Good news for established homeowners and sellers but first home buyers who dip into their super might find themselves worse off. That's our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan. Well what about the politics of all of this? The federal election has entered its final week with the pitch battle over housing affordability. Our reporter David Lipson joins me now. David, how are the politics of all of this playing out? Well, Sally, as you know, half the battle is seizing the narrative, and Scott Morrison has certainly done that in this final crucial week of the campaign. Really, he's banking on young Australians, I guess, caring more about the present, that is getting a roof over their heads now, moving out of their parents' homes and the like, than they care about their superannuation savings, uh, certainly in the short term. And we did see during the pandemic, young people were more than willing to pull money out of their superannuation. Sometimes that was out of desperation, but you know, the overriding mood amongst wannabe first home buyers is desperation too. So here we are. I guess what's a little interesting here is that it's a pitch to young people, which is not the nor- the coalition's normal sort of base. We know from the polls that those under 50 are preparing to vote Labor in much greater numbers than they plan to vote for the coalition. So the, go- the co- government's clearly confident that uh, that vote, that young people's vote, is somewhat soft and it can be changed on an issue like housing. So the Prime Minister today stared ba- down the barrel of the cameras and made his, pe- his pitch directly to them. Labor will never let you do it. They think it's their money to tell you what to do with. I believe it's your money. And to get access to your own money to help you buy a house, the only way to achieve that is to vote Liberal and National next Saturday. So Anthony Albanese clearly is not going to uh, to back in this policy. It's just too important. That is superannuation to Labor. So he's framing this in terms of the budget and in terms of government debt. Here he was. What super is about is making sure that people can retire with a decent income. That is the purpose of the superannuation system. It was designed to give people a comfortable retirement. If you gut people's super savings, that means down the track, more people dependent upon the pension, more pressure on budgets in the future. That's Anthony Albanese there. What's the political response been so far? Well, I guess we're in this absurd zone now where both sides of politics have put forward housing affordability policies that will actually drive up the cost of housing. And, uh, and you know, they're accusing each other of that. And, and in this case, they're both right. Um, on this, though, um, Jane Hume, the Minister for Superannuation, actually admitted that there will be a bump in the housing market in the short term. Here she was on RN. I would imagine that there would be a lot of people that bring forward their decision to buy a house. So I would imagine in the short term, you might see a bump in house prices, but that doesn't play out the long-term benefits of more home ownership. The Prime Minister has tried to clean that up today, saying any impact of his policy on the housing market will be, quote, marginal because of the Coalition's whole suite of housing policies, home builder, the downsizing policy and the like. But he hasn't offered any economic modelling and he hasn't nominated a figure as to what marginal means. David, thank you. That's our political reporter, David Lipson. On ABC Radio, right across the country, you're with us on The World Today. Well, now to our series of reports on the safety of rural nurses. Documents obtained by The World Today show the hospital at Burke in outback New South Wales failed a security audit. 
The hospital has been in the spotlight because of ongoing attacks on nurses by violent patients and intruders. It all came to a head on January 25th this year when several student nurses were held at knife point. Western New South Wales Local Health District is refusing to release the full security audit because of fears it will undermine public confidence. The district is trying to attract more nurses to Burke. Its promotional video sells the message. In Western New South Wales, you'll experience a range of interesting and challenging work, scenarios that will bring purpose to life, and we can help broaden the scope and fast-track your career. But the June 2020 security audit shows that Burke Hospital failed 106 of 181 criteria, including 87 high-risk criteria. Western New South Wales Local Health says the audit wasn't calibrated for a small hospital and its results are outdated. Health officials have redacted the entire 60-page report, fearing that it would discourage health workers from applying for jobs at Burke, discourage patients from seeking health care and diminish staff morale. We received a summary of the audit under Freedom of Information, along with a series of emails. The emails show staff warning local health district CEO Mark Spittle about security issues at the hospital only hours after the student nurses were attacked on January 25th. The situation at Burke has become urgent. The behaviours of the local criminals is escalating. The following day, Mark Spittle urges his team to focus on Burke. I want you to make improving safety at Burke a high priority this year. Burke is one of our two most vulnerable sites. But on February 11th, staff expressed concern again after nurses are threatened by a violent patient. Seriously worried about the mental health of staff. An occasional incident is one thing, but this constant threat of real and perceived violence is taking its toll. New South Wales Health says it's reviewed and improved security at Burke Hospital and has brought in nurses from other hospitals to temporarily bolster staffing. One of those nurses has agreed to speak about what she saw. She doesn't want to be identified, so we'll call her Beck. She says she wasn't warned about the security problems at Burke before she arrived. We had no notice or heads up as to what we were entering into. The Burke experience was kind of sold as just this good out-of-town experience, but there was just no mention of, of what we were walking into. I had even asked one of the executives if, you know, there was any security concerns and they flat out just said, no, no, it's a lovely little town. Um, a couple of young kids who were causing trouble, but nothing major. So it was absolutely downplayed. And when we arrived, the staff told us what they'd been living through the past few months and we were just shocked. We had no idea. What do you think about that? It made me very angry for us to be sent in to help out without any transparency It made me question what else they were lying about. But yeah, I was absolutely furious. Were you given any formal induction when you arrived at Burke Hospital? No. Um, So no, no induction, no orientation, thrown straight into the deep end. Were you asked to sign any documents saying that you had been inducted properly? I was asked to sign some induction papers on my last day. Um, I was asked to sign a piece of paper saying that I had been inducted to the place. What was your reaction to that? I said no. What was your impression of the resources and equipment at the hospital? Did you have the kind of basic supplies that you needed to do everyday nursing? No, no. We walked in. Over my time there, we, we slowly started to run out of, of 20-gauge cannulas, the most common, common used. By day two, we had run out of one-litre bags of normal saline. 
There was there was no ECG dots, basic bits of equipment. Um, so it was just crazy. I was having to to ask the Ambos to pilfer some of their supply. What was your overall impression of the state of the hospital? Yeah, so my first impression, the, the staff were, were visibly traumatised. They were exhausted and run off their feet. They were just desperate for more for more help. Absolutely doing the best they could given the circumstances, but you could really tell that there was a lack of leadership in the hospital. How much did you feel for the nurses who'd been there for, for some time? I, I felt so bad for them. I felt like they just doing the best that they can so that they can make sure that the people of Burke have quality care, but they're just under such trying circumstances. Do you think health officials understand the seriousness of the situation at Burke Hospital? I don't think so. I mean, if they did, they wouldn't be letting it go on as it is now. I, I just don't think they understand. Every, every, everyone in New South Wales deserves the same level of health care. I just feel that the people of Burke aren't getting that same level of health care that you would if you were from a major hospital in one of the big towns. How strongly do you feel about that? Yeah, very strongly. Yeah, no, it was sho- I was shocked to um, be working in these conditions in a hospital in Australia, in New South Wales. That's Beck, one of the nurses sent to fill in at Burke Hospital in Outback, New South Wales. The full statement from Western New South Wales Local Health District will be on our website shortly. Finally today, a push is underway to strengthen Europe's main military alliance, NATO, in direct response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Sweden and Finland, countries long considered neutral, are being fast-tracked for membership on the back of soaring public support. It's another sign that European countries are determined to punish Russia for its aggression. Matt Bamford reports. For years, the small city of Lappenrunda has sat comfortably on Finland's border with Russia. But since the war in Ukraine started, residents like Rita Mustanen are feeling a little uneasy towards their neighbour. That is why we are joining NATO. Yeah, that's the reason. Because we need more power, you see. Russia is a country that respects only power, nothing else. A power needs a counterpower. Now we will have it with NATO. Support among Finns for joining the defence bloc has soared 76% in recent months, according to a poll by Finland's public broadcaster. Now President Sauli Ninister and Prime Minister Sanna Marin have announced Finland will seek NATO membership. We have today a historic day. Finland will maximise its security and that is not a way from anybody. President Minister phoned Russian President Vladimir Putin to tell him, a conversation he described as cool. Finland isn't the only European country pushing aside its tradition of non-alignment to stand against Russia. Sweden is also on the verge of joining the alliance. Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson. Our 200-year-long standing policy of military non-alignment has served Sweden well. But the issue at hand is whether military non-alignment will keep serving. As well. And Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine is uh, not only illegal and indefensible, it also undermines the European security order that Sweden builds its security on. Prime Minister Andersson says Sweden has been forced to act to stabilise an increasingly fragile Europe. And the Kremlin has shown that they are prepared to use violence and achieve, to achieve their political objectives and that they don't hesitate to take enormous risks. They put forward the unacceptable demands for appeasement and submission, submission of peaceful and democratic 
neighbours, including Sweden. It's the start of what could be a year-long process. First, their applications must be accepted by NATO, then ratified by all 30 member states, which can involve complex diplomatic bargaining. NATO member Turkey has already raised concerns. Jen Stoltenberg, NATO's Secretary-General, is confident the details can be worked out. Turkey has made it clear that their intention is not to block membership. So my intention is still to have a a quick and swift uh, uh, process because all allies uh, realise the historic magnitude of the moment. If he's right, it will be a major boost for NATO's firepower. Gorana Gurdjic is from the US Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Both of these countries actually uh, are quite capable in terms of their uh, military clout. Finland and Sweden are security producers. Uh, They spend quite a lot on their uh, uh, military, on on their defence. So a really dramatic kind of realigning of the power dynamics of Europe. Uh, Undoubtedly so. There's one thing that's clear is that uh, Vladimir Putin on that uh, February of 24th might have not succeeded in the blitzkrieg of uh, Ukraine, but what he was able to do is end the decades and centuries long neutrality of Sweden and Finland and also end German's pacifism. And those are uh, really momentous shifts when it comes to European defence architecture. That's Karana Gurchich from the US Study Centre at the University of Sydney, ending that report from Matt Bamford. That's all from us at the World Today team for this Monday. We'll be back again same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. Take care. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. As Australians prepare to head to the polls on Saturday, COVID has been glaringly ignored throughout the campaign, even though Australia's infection rate per capita is now the equal highest in the world. Today, the co-host of the ABC's CoronaCast, Dr Norman Swan, on what's been happening with the virus while our attention's been elsewhere. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.